Emily told me that, you know, we got a call from the Jewish family services. They're, you know, we're working with them with St. Clair's and Temple Beth Emmett to provide um, household items and personal items for mainly Syrian refugees who are, who are coming uh, to be settled in the Ann Arbor area. And they had like some last minute needs of, you know, kids who needed coats and boots and some adults who needed some winter coats. And they sent out an email and Diane got it in Italy where she's hanging out with Paul and having a good time. <laughs> sent it to, to, to Emily and, and Emily sends out a, a, a congregational update, you know, um, after the congregational update, kind of a last minute thing. It says, call me or contact me if you're able to help out. She said within two hours, all of the needs of the Jewish Family Social Services was uh, met for our refugees. And I'm like, yes, that's so good. I think you even called and said, is there any, anything more we can get, right? So if you're bringing stuff, uh, that table is the place to, to go to. And this is part of our, like, our post-election distress response. You know, we got to pay attention. We got to object. We got to resist, not go along when things get funky. And we need to rally. We need to rally to uh, people who are being targeted. And, and just being able to rally around Syrian refugees and make them feel welcome despite the bad mojo that is coming their uh, way post-election is really important. And it feels good. It helps me to, to do that, to feel like I can do something positive in the face of all this boo honky. So, okay. Our reading today, um, Evie did a great job with our reading from uh, Matthew. What was that? Chapter two, I think. Um, the reading is about a young engaged couple and the distress the soon-to-be husband has when his soon-to-be wife is found to be pregnant. He determines to divorce her quietly rather than making a big scene, but wisely he sleeps on it first. So if you're going to do something like that, you know, sleep on it first. And it pays off because he has a dream. And in the dream, an angel appears to him and says, this pregnancy is from God and he should chill. And so he chills. He stays with this and he decides to get married anyway. The couple is from the Galilee. Uh, which is also known in the Bible as Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. It was the northern part of Israel that had a long history of being ravaged by one empire after the other. I mean, hundreds of years earlier, it had been ravaged by the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, then, Peter the, then Alexander the Great and his whores. Eventually, the Romans are occupying the Galilee at this time. Every invasion of this northern region had brought the deportation of thousands of Jews and the importation of thousands of Gentiles, especially soldiers. So they're increasing ethnic uh, tensions. There, there was a sense of uh, the Jewish people being violated by the presence of so many Gentiles, not least of which are the occupation forces. And the thing is, we don't actually know what Joseph understood about this pregnancy and its cause. Uh, the angel said it was of God, it was of the Holy Spirit. But yeah, if you're, if you're married, like soon to be husband, well, what does that mean? Uh, was this like an old fling with an old boyfriend that I thought was over? Had she been assaulted by a Roman soldier? Many young women, Jewish women, would have become pregnant from Roman soldiers taking advantage of them. Um, later, the church came to regard this as a miraculous virgin birth, 
But there was no indication in the text at the time that this was Joseph's belief at the time. And Joseph is a Middle Eastern man, which means he's in a shame-honor culture. Um, our culture is a little bit more like a guilt cult culture. You know, if you do something wrong, you're supposed to feel guilty. In the Middle East, it's a different culture. It's not so much about guilt. It's about shame and honor and keeping faith and, and being part of the group and not doing anything that will threaten your belonging to the group. So in a shame-honor culture, a pregnancy of this sort uh, would be shameful no matter the cause. And Joseph would carry this shame as like the little man whose wife was pregnant by someone else, not by him. He carried that shame for the rest of his life. There's not a single word from Joseph that is recorded in all of Scripture. Pretty important figure, Mary and Joseph, holy family. Not a single word of Joseph's is recorded in Scripture. And I'm thinking maybe he was just so stinking mad he didn't want to talk. Um, so it's interesting that the lectionary, which is a set of reads, uh, readings that um, uh, the liturgical churches use, and we've been uh, using them as well, especially uh, during Advent, the psalm that is paired with this gospel reading uh, appropriately is a complaint. It's, it's Psalm 80. In fact, we can pass that out. Uh, Jackie and others had that. If you can, I, I got the uh, Psalm 80 printed up on you uh, for you so you can uh, take a look at that as we, we unpack it. But Psalm 80 is the story of, uh, is the, the context of Psalm 80 is uh, it's, it's the complaint of a Jewish man against the Jewish God. And the Jewish man is complaining because he is under oppression, the oppression in this case of the Assyrian army. So Israel by this time has had one of the earliest of, of the deportation forces happening and the occupation forces. And this complaint comes out of that context and it's set in northern Israel just as Joseph and Mary were from the Galilee. Uh, the, uh, so for Joseph and Mary, it's the Roman occupation for this psalmist in Psalm 80, and hopefully you've got that pretty quick. Um, it was the Assyrian hordes who were occupying their land. So this psalm, Psalm 80, you could think of it as a window into a lover's dispute with the God that he loves. So Israel is conceived of in the Old Testament and the prophets especially, for example, prophet Hosea conceives Israel as a wife and God is her husband. In this case, in Psalm 80, the wife is mad. And so like couples do uh, throughout the Holy Bible, um, this couple, God and Israel, voice their complaints against each other. So elsewhere, especially in the prophets, God has complaints about Israel. And here, especially in the Psalms, Israel has complaints about God. And they're, they're voiced with equal vigor and freedom. You know, um, often we have lots of complaints about other people that we just don't even bother to voice, right? Like Julia and I are walking down Washtenaw. We walked, to, we walked from our home to um, Arborland. It's like two miles away, and we're walking down Washtenaw, and like Midas, you know, the, 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 the muffler shop, 
They hadn't like, you know, shoveled their walk and we're trudging through and we're like, we ought to complain to Midas about it, but we're not going to go complain to Midas about their sidewalk. Not, it's like, it, they're not important enough for us to voice our complaints. Um, relationships may not be uh, strong enough to voice a complaint. You may not voice a complaint in a relationship because you don't know if it's going to damage the relationship or even in the relationship. So we have a lot of complaints with a lot of people that we never get around to voicing. And so in a sense, if you think about times that you've actually voiced a real complaint that you had a stake in, it was probably with someone that was close to you and that the relationship was stable enough or meaningful enough to you to go through the bother and the pain of voicing the complaint. Real complaints are for our closest, most enduring connections. And this is what we see in Psalm 80. Let's just go through the Psalm of complaint in sections. Um, actually, let me, get, let me do the first little section. I don't have it in my notes here, but um, someone read the first, first line. Brad, you're a, you're a worship person. Read that first line, like boom it out loud. For the lead player on the Shoshang and Edith Yes. What does that mean? These are like the instructions. The Psalms are songs. And this is for like the lead vocalist. It's on the Shoshamin, which actually is just the name of a melody. Probably it meant the lilies. So like in the Episcopal hymnal, I'm an expert on these things now. There's different melodies that have names and they're used for several hymns. Like Michael is the name for one melody and the old 100th is the name for another melody. This, this is the musical notation here. I think the other term is um, not Psalm of Adef, it's Elud or something like that. It's a Hebrew term that's um, connected to the idea of covenant. So this, there's the, the, the psalmist is speaking out of his covenant relationship with God. And I think the other name in there, Asaph, is probably a Levite who was like a well-known choir director of his time. So it's just, it's important for us to understand we're regarding this as a text. We're talking about it like a, a text, but it's a song. These are lyrics for a song. And so much truth in the Bible is meant to be sung. It's meant to come into our being in a way that only a song with a melody can come into our being because it's filled with feeling and the Psalms are like that especially. So the early verses, shepherd of Israel, hearken, listen to me. He who drives Joseph like a sheep enthroned on the cherubim, shine forth or appear, show up. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, rouse your might and come to the rescue for us. Oh God, bring us back and light up your face that we may be rescued. So all the names here identify this as a northern region um, psalm. Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh are all names of the northernmost tribes that are, have been devastated, we know, at this period by the Assyrian deportation force and the occupation force. The, the abject cries that this psalm opens up with uh, reveal the psalmist's sense of vulnerability. So if you're privileged, you know, you, you can pretend that you're really not that vulnerable. But it's the poor and the oppressed who understand the existential vulnerability that goes along with being a human being, that we're actually not the masters of the universe. We're a lot more like sheep. Uh, we only survive in a flock 
with a shepherd that's like taking care of us. Um, True prayer isn't about getting your words right. It's about speaking from your vulnerability. And that's so often why we don't really pray is we don't like to inhabit and face our vulnerability. But it's essential for prayer to this God. We go on. Lord God of armies, how long will you smolder against your people's prayers? Like the, the main complaint of the, of the psalm here. How long will you like have a wrathful, angry disposition toward our prayers? You fed them the bread of tears and made them drink triple measure of tears. You have put us in strife with our neighbors and our enemies mock us. God of armies, bring us back and light up your face that we may be rescued. Uh, this, this name of God is characteristic of the psalm. It's repeated a few times. A God of armies. Now, remember that Israel, for most of its existence, actually didn't have armies. Um, the Egyptians had armies. The Assyrians had armies. The Babylonians had armies. Peter the Great had armies. The, uh, Nero and, and the Roman emperors had armies. Israel didn't have armies. They were occupied people. Um, for us as Americans to call God the God of armies, like as a totally different feel than for Israel to refer to God as the God of armies. For us, it would be like a macho. We'd just be putting like a spiritual layer on our sense of pride and our military dominance in the world. But for them to call God the God of armies was a subversive resistance to military dominance. Now, those armies were the boss of them. (laughs) And by calling God the God of armies, they were saying to the occupation force, God is the boss of you. So it was a subversive, kind of rebellious thing to refer to God as the God of armies. And then we have this first, which I think is really the primary complaint of the psalm. Um, It's something I think every praying person can identify with. How long will you smolder against our prayers? That was the experience of the psalmist. That when the psalmist was praying, he had this feeling that God was just was frowning, was just stewing, was smoldering, had like a slow burn disapproval and angry disposition. Like I'm just, my instinct is just to want to dismiss your prayers before they're even out of your mouth. How long will you smolder against our prayers? If you're a praying person, if you pray for your needs, if you pray, you know, Every day in some way, oh God, do this. God, please help me with that. You realize that sometimes you get what you need. And sometimes it's like God is deaf to your prayers. I mean, I'm a big believer in prayer. I I believe in prayer. I do prayer. I I can't not pray. Uh, This church is the result of a string of specific answered prayers. Um... Emily and I knew we had a month to launch with only hopes and guesses of whether it was possible. The the sheer practicalities were daunting. It's like, Lord, we need a place to meet and fast. And that was not a given. Done. Lord, we need a worship leader. Cassie Brabs would be good. Done. We need a sound person who really knows sound, you know, and done. Done. It was there. We, we, need, we need to make payroll 
for the first time. Done. We need committed people to show up and, and go along with this thing and, and contribute and volunteer. Done. And, and on and on. On the one hand. On the other hand. We had four people, like dear, um, supportive, important to this church people who came into the church in that first year with serious cancer. All of them too young to die. All of them really needed by us, let alone needed by their families. They all died. And it wasn't for lack of prayer on our part. So the, the psalmist is in this kind of a state. He's in like a prayer desert. Uh, he's praying for daily bread, sure. He's getting daily bread. He's got, enough, he's got enough life to pray. But what he's really been praying for is deliverance from oppression. I mean, wouldn't that be what you'd be praying for if you were under occupation and it was making your life miserable in a thousand ways? He was praying for deliverance from oppression and it was nothing. And it had been like this as long as anyone in his family, his father, and his grandfather could remember. And you notice the psalmist doesn't like explain it away. He doesn't like to try to like preserve God's reputation as a nice loving guy. He doesn't say things like, well, sometimes God knows what's best for us, and sometimes the answer is no. You know, like, sometimes the answer is, you're screwed. No, he, 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 he doesn't do that. He doesn't conclude, like many of us do, well, maybe it's just better not to ask God for things. I mean, the disappointment I feel when I ask and I don't get what I ask for is so intense. I think maybe it'd be better to just think about God as like, God is not someone you should ask things of. What does he do? He complains. And his co complaint is about God rejecting his prayers, but it's voiced in a prayer. So this is his prayer. God, you're not hearing my prayer. But the only way he can convey it is in a prayer. This is in your face complaining at its very best. And the complaints keep coming in the psalm. And they, and they, like, they build in emotional intensity. He's talking now about his people. And remember, he's, a, he's an ancient Middle Eastern man. So he's a communalist. He's not an individualist. You carried a vine out of Egypt. Uh, Israel always conceived of itself as like God's vine, God's vineyard. You drove away nations and planted it. You cleared space before it and struck its roots down and it filled the lands like we, we spread and we multiplied. The mountains were covered by its shade and by its branches, the mighty cedars. You sent for its bows to the sea and to the river, its shoots. So Israel was known for its vineyards. It was just a natural metaphor for uh, the people, the national identity. It thought of itself as a vineyard. In order to plant a vineyard, you need to you know, plant one. You need to clear the land. You need to uh, transplant a shoot from a healthy, good vine and then plant it. And then you build a wall around it to protect it. And within that, the confines of that space, the the vine spreads and, and it thrives and it pr produces wine and all that's needed for fun and joy and pleasure to the people. So here's the punchline of the complaint. Why then? 
Did you break through its walls so all passers-by could pluck it? Like, if you took so much trouble to plan us, why knock down the wall that protects us? The boar from the forest has gnawed it, and like, so the boar is like a, like a wild pig from the forest has gnawed it, and the swarm of the field, the creatures, the insects have fed upon it. This is what it's like to be an occupied people. I mean, is this line right here how Joseph felt when his young Mary found herself pregnant? as so many young women find themselves pregnant when their land is crawling with occupation soldiers invading their homes, just taking what they want. I mean, this, this is a powerfully emotional complaint. Maybe J Joseph used this psalm as his psalm of complaint. Maybe we could use it. If you've got a complaint against God, go ahead and make it. I and mean, that's what the psalm is saying to us. If you've got a complaint against God, go ahead and make it. And, and don't dial it down so he's not, you know, hurt. We're talking about God here. Like he's, he's got lots of resource. He's got a pretty good self-image, you know. He's not very insecure. He's, he's not going to be like easily swayed if you're making a complaint that's not justified. If you've got a complaint against God, go ahead and make it. I mean, this, this is showing us something about the bond between Israel and her God. It was a bond of love, but it was a bond of like real love. And, and you know, real love, um, real love has a dog-like quality, right? I mean, like your dog, you know, you may observe the strict rule that you never break, no scraps from the table. And yet your dog, you sit down at the table, your dog is sitting right there, and that dog is, is as hopeful as if that rule never existed. <laughs> it's just waiting because I, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a first time. I'm going to get a scrap from the table. I can feel it. I mean, dogs are like Pentecostal. They're like, they're like expectant. They're like looking for the best from their master. Love is like that. St. Paul said, love, it bears all things. It believes all things. Like a dog, it hopes all things. It endures all things. God didn't give up on Israel. And Israel didn't give up on God. The complaint sometimes is the act of not giving up on someone. The complaint sometimes is the expression of love for someone. And if you're in a committed relationship, now I know this doesn't apply to Rachel and Emily yet, but if you're in a committed relationship, you better learn the art of complaining. You better learn the art of complaining. A good complaint is just like in this psalm. It's like a tutorial in a good complaint. The complaint is direct. It reveals the feelings that fuel it. And it comes with an ask. How, how you can fix this for me. So the psalmist's complaint is, is direct. This is not a complaint about God to other people. But it's in your face. It's face-to-face it's -face with God making his complaint to God. His complaint, and it spends a lot of the time in the, in the complaint, is just 
the psalmist uncovering his feelings, the feelings of injury, the feelings of mental anguish, his, his revealing feeling to God in the complaint. This is like a pretty good lesson, actually. You know, we often tend to um, frame our complaints as moral accusations, don't we? Like, when we make our complaints against our loved ones, it's like, well, like, we're in the position of being, you know, we got it together, we see things clearly. And so we like to frame our, our complaints as moral accusations. You know, what you're doing is wrong. Uh, what you're doing is not fair. What you're doing is irresponsible. What you're doing is, is kind of selfish. Uh, the only emotion that we're revealing in those kind of complaints is self-righteous pissiness. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's emotion, but it's, it's just a single, single emotion. Our real feelings, I mean, the things that are really fueling the complaint, that are behind our sense of injury, are hidden with those kind of complaints. So, um, last year, I'm, I'm it, it's, let's see, last year is 2015, so it's like my first full year of, uh, of marriage to Julia, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of noticing myself bent out of shape when Julia is coming home later than I expected. Like, you know, I have a job, she has a job, mine's nearby, hers is like in the, you know, Farmington Hills, and, you know, sometimes she'd be coming home at five, sometimes she'd be coming home at seven, I wasn't always sure, and I'm, I'm, I'm politely pissy about this, you know. And then I realized, man, this is really bugging me at a, at a why is this bugging me so much? Because I'm a pretty go-with-the-flow person, and I realize, when she's not home, when I expect her to be, it's like I'm feeling these weird feelings of intense social rejection, which is like, I don't normally have those feelings. Like, I, if I walk into a room, I kind of expect people to like me or, you know, I, I, it's not my wiring to, like, feel super like, oh, am I going to be accepted? Except, well, I, I had gone through this earlier, you know, like the year before was kind of heavy on the social rejection thing. And I realized, oh, I'm, this is leaking into my closest relationships. I'm having like an expectation of so, social rejection in some of my core relationships. And once I realized that, then, then I was able to like, to share it with Julia. It's like, here's what I'm feeling when, when I'm not hearing from you when you're coming home. She's like, oh, oh, okay, I, got, I, I get it. Artful complaints unpack the feeling and just own the feelings for what they are. And they're also followed by an ask most of the time. Like, here's what you can do to make it better for me. In, in this psalm, every complaint is followed by an ask. It's just like complaint, ask, complaint, ask. Like this, God of armies, pray, come back. This is after the big complaint is downloaded. It's also laced with a little more complaint. Look down from the heavens and see and take note of this vine. Like, just pay attention to us. And the stock that your right hand planted and the sun you took to yourself. Israel conceives of herself as a vine, a vineyard, and also as God's child, a son. Burnt in fire, chopped to bits, like not doing well. From the blast of your presence they perish. May your hand be over the man on your right, over the son of man you took to yourself. This is Israel's view of herself as a son. And we will not fall back from you. 
Restore us to life and we shall call on your name. Like, you do your part and we're going to do our part. You're the one that's fallen down on this thing now. Lord God of armies, bring us back. Light up your face that we may be rescued. Light up your face is like, like, look upon us with favor. Smile at us. If you're feeling detached or distant from God, and it's a common way to feel. You just feel kind of just cold. You're just kind of going through the motions. You feel disconnected, kind of detached from God. You may be harboring a complaint that you haven't taken up with God in a wholehearted way. Um, so in high school, I didn't feel very close to my dad in high school. Um, he was dealing with some heavy personal issues. And, and I was like underperforming academically for my family system. So my two older sisters went to Cast Tech, which was like the hot school, and they, they got all A's, and they were like, they were like the, good, the good daughters. And I was like, ah, been there, done that. I'm just going to go to Henry Ford. I'm not going to Cast Tech. And I was underperforming academically for my family expectation. I was, I was getting by with B's. Actually, my grade point average was 2.9. <laughs> the thing I was into was track and cross country, and that was, that's where I was in, in, in being the sports editor on the paper and all that kind of stuff, and I had a girlfriend. And, and, and my dad um, noticed my, you know, my priorities a little askew, and he started to just... Every now and again, he would threaten to pull me from track or sports, if I didn't uh, get my grades up. And it was just, it was, it was really grinding on me because it was just like this little thing over my head and it was lasting and it was like, so one day when he brought it up again, I, I did something that was very unusual in my family system, which is I just blew up and I did it right in his face and I just like offloaded my, my complaint right to him directly. Like it didn't happen in the Wilson family like that. And um, I was pretty good. <laughs> I voiced my complaint with feeling like, look, you keep threatening with me with this. If it's so important to you that I got a 3.0 instead of a 2.9, pull me out of sports already. Not that it will do any good. And I, I got it out, you know. You know, looking back, um, before that, I was just in like a cool, detached connection to my dad. I was avoiding, I was resenting. But with that burst of angry complaint, I was bringing my whole self back into the relationship with my father. And, and he listened. He heard me out. And we had an actual heart-to-heart -heart conversation. It's actually one of the most treasured conversation I have uh, of my dad as a, as a young man, and I felt closer to him as a result. So you can use a psalm like this to prime the pump if you think you might be harboring a complaint that you haven't brought out wholeheartedly to God. Now, that's the purpose of these, these psalms. You know, it's it's not as much at stake because it's somebody else, you know. And you read it and you, you see yourself in it and you identify with the psalmist and you, you enter into the feeling that the psalmist has. 
and you see how this guy owned his feelings and you start owning his feelings and identifying with them and, and it's safe because it's someone else and you just, you get it out and it's, it's weird, it kind of primes your pump and then you'll start realizing, oh, I've got a complaint and may, you might even find yourself giving different words to your complaint but bringing it out with the same kind of wholehearted engagement that the psalmist is connecting to God with. Um, it's a... It can be a beautiful thing, properly understood. So um, for quiet reflection here, we take a few minutes um, to um, just hunker down, settle down, and absorb some of this. And uh, you can use the time any way you want, but I'm going to, for those of you interested, I'm going to um, offer kind of a, a guided meditation. Let me tell you what it is in advance so you know it's coming and you don't have to... Um, worry about it and then I'll actually just walk it through you over a couple of minutes. The first thing I'll ask you to do is just to identify uh, something that you're thankful for, some blessing in your life that you're thankful for and to maybe picture holding that in, in one hand um, and then I'm going to ask you to identify a complaint you have about your life. It doesn't have to be like the core existential complaint of your existence. Just whatever comes to mind, some complaint that you have about your life, things not working the way you want them to work. And then think of like holding that in the other hand. And then I'll just ask you to hold those two things together, one in one hand, one in the other hand, like simultaneously, and just sit with that for a while. And then I'll give you some verbal prompts, some suggestions about how to think about God um, sitting in front of you in that state. Yeah, up for it? Great. So get yourself comfortable. Um, maybe take a deep breath. Settle, settle in your chair. And take a little time now just to identify something that you're thankful for. And if it's helpful, just to uh, associate that as something you're holding in your hand. Something you're thankful for. Okay, now um, shift gears a little bit and hold on to that one thing in your hand, but identify a complaint you have about your life. Just a, just a, it could be a simple thing, a single thing. The clearer it is, the better. And then hold that in your other hand. Some complaint you have about your life. Now just hold those two together, one in one hand, other in the other hand. Just sit with that for a while. You have something you're thankful for and you have a complaint. Just sit with both of them simultaneously for a little bit. to suggest that you imagine God sitting across from you 
but in a particular way. So just, just run with this. Imagine God sitting across from you, like directly across from you, um, like at the right distance for you to feel connected but not like invaded. Um, and, and you're feeling at ease. Just imagine that God were sitting there looking at you and you were, for whatever reason, you were just feeling completely at ease. Um, God's not judging you. God's not scrutinizing you. Um, God's not disappointed with you. Just if you can imagine God sitting across from you in that posture toward you. And just give this a little time. And I want to suggest that you imagine God is as non-defensive about the complaint as he is about the gratitude. So he's, he's got basically the same disposition towards you with the gratitude as he does with the complaint. He's not threatened by either one. He's not defensive about either one. He's actually as willing to hear the one as to hear the other. Just pick, see if you can picture God like that. Maybe just to take advantage of that space, um, you might want to just say to God that um, maybe you'd like to think more about what your complaint is, and then at a later time, have a conversation with him about it, and see, see if he's okay with that. to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen.